The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. So if you need to use 1 John 1.9 to make sure you're in fellowship, ready to study the Word, ready to focus on doctrine, ready to put out of our minds all of the distracting events of the week and of the day and this afternoon, and focus on the eternal Word of God that is the only source of peace and stability. Uh, we'll begin with silent prayer and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, at this time of the national crisis, we pray that you would help us to see things for as they truly are in terms of your plan, that we have objectivity from your word, and your word helps us to understand what the real issues in life are. We understand that we have freedom by your grace, and that our freedoms have often been taken lightly and have too often been used frivolously. Father, we pray that in the light of the events of this last week that many people in this nation would wake up and, and that this would uh, arrest their attention to eternal realities, that life hangs by a short thread and that it can be taken away very quickly, very rapidly. And therefore, our, we must focus our attention on the ultimate realities of life, and that is your word, that we must make doctrine the number one priority in our lives. Father, we also pray at this time for our national leaders, especially for our president, for his advisors in the military, his advisors related to uh, departments of state, transportation, all of his, all the cabinet members, national security advisors. Father, we pray that you would give them wisdom. We are thankful that we have a president and that many of the key people in leadership in this nation are not only believers, but they are positive to doctrine. And we pray that you would give them wisdom to make the kinds of tough decisions that need to be made. And we pray for our nation that there would be 
even though there will be many who will be critical of different decisions, that you would give us a real unity and that we might not uh, succumb to the fragmentation from arrogance, which is very likely in light of our past. But that this would be a time that will really arrest people's attention to the realities of life. And it would be a tremendous time for evangelism, that people would be responsive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that we might uh, find wisdom in it, that the Holy Spirit, who has revealed it to us, would help us to understand it, that we might gain greater insight into the events of the day, as well as the scope of history. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me again to Judges chapter 20. Judges chapter 20. I have said again and again, as we have gone through Judges, that this is a book that gives us insight into history. In fact, I think a case can be made that Judges is the first truly historical book, because history is not merely the recording of events that have transpired, but it is the proper analysis and interpretation of those events. And since history is the outworking of the plan of God, the only truly accurate interpretation of history is a history that is a historical perspective that is based upon divine viewpoint and takes into account the plan and purposes for God, which, of course, is going to put Israel at the center center focus of, of history. Because God, since the call of Abraham, is working through the world, primarily through Israel, even in the church age when God is working through the church, and that Israel has been temporarily set aside, God is still, uh, God has not removed Israel completely from his plan. And God is still blessing the church through Israel, through the seed of Abraham, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Many lessons can be learned from studying Judges, and we've seen many and we've applied many of these principles. And last night as I was going over the lesson in Judges 20 again, uh, it hit me that there were a number of um, at least superficial parallels between what happens here and what is going on this, this week in our nation. But we must be careful not to leap to conclusions or make unjustified uh, application simply because there seem to be certain parallels. It strikes me as somewhat ironical that as we get into this, these events in Judges 19 through 20, it starts off with a, with a crisis. Now, the crisis is, of course, different from the one we're facing nationally, but it starts off with a crisis. It's a crisis in a family that becomes a national crisis, and then we see how they respond, but they respond wrong. They respond partly right and partly wrong. And in that lies a tremendous lesson that we must pay attention to. We looked the last two times at Judges 19. Last time we spent more time looking at the general application. One of the things that I think that we, uh, we need to pay attention to when we're studying through uh, Old Testament narrative like this is that there are different levels of application, and by that I don't mean different levels of interpretation, but different levels of application. Interpretation has to do with the history of Israel, and interpretation always relates to what the original author intended to say. And what the intent, original author intended to communicate, at least in terms of the broad theme of Judges, is what happens to a culture when they succumb to relativism, when they succumb to paganism. It's the mechanics of how a nation goes from um, 
spiritual uh, spiritual orientation to God and spiritual maturity to apostasy and reversionism. Now, by way of application, we can draw application both at a national level in terms of what happens to a culture as, as at large and can apply to any culture, and it also relates spiritually. Remember, when you look at especially passages like like we find in, in um, Joshua and Judges, the application for the believer is in the realm of sanctification. That is our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, and that almost every, I cannot come up with an exception, almost every metaphor in Scripture that deals with the spiritual life at some level adopts a battle battlefield or military terminology because it is a fight. It is a struggle. There is, um, in the Old Testament, we see a pattern. Israel is called at the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. The nation is redeemed, or, or in, let's, first they are enslaved, and that takes place during the approximately 400 years in Egypt. Then they are purchased with the price. They are redeemed at the Exodus. Following the Exodus, or in the process of the Exodus, they pass through the waters of the Red Sea. It is after redemption, let's put the doctrine down here below. Here you have the doctrine of redemption related to the Exodus event. It is only after redemption that they are given a standard of the Mosaic Law by which the nation, as a redeemed nation, is supposed to live. Now, when I say a redeemed nation, I do not mean that every individual in the nation is saved, but that the nation is redeemed because they've been redeemed from slavery. Now, this whole thing, this whole history of Israel then, is laid out and is analogous to what happens in the believer's life. We are called in eternity past. That is analogous to the call of Abraham. When we are born, we are born enslaved to sin, and we are purchased with the incorruptible blood of Jesus Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish, and our redemption takes place at the instance of faith alone, in Christ alone. At that time, we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit and identified with Christ. That is analogous to what happens at the Red Sea, so that there is entrance into a new position and new realities for the spiritual life. Everything after that has to do with the spiritual life, and everything in the history of Israel uh, after the Red Sea is analogous to what happens in the spiritual life of the believer. So that you have episodes like the Exodus generation and their and the wilderness wanderings are analogous to what happens to the believer living in carnality. In many ways it's analogous to what Paul goes through in Romans chapter seven. And then the Joshua generation is somewhat analogous to what happens in Romans chapter eight and a generation that exercises the faith rest drill. Then judges is a portrait of what happens to the believer in apostasy and reversionism and how the, un, the, the believer can uh, revert and begin to live just like an unbeliever. 
And so we go through the book of Judges. We see the leadership and how they apostatized. And the last two major episodes in Judges, Judges 17 and 18, that deal with the apostasy of Micah and the apostate priesthood and the uh, false or the idolatrous shrine set up in the tribe of Dan pictures the apostasy and the priesthood, the religious apostasy that precedes the moral collapse of the nation. And Judges 19 through 21 is a picture of the moral collapse of the nation. And what we've seen in Judges chapter 19 is the episode that revolves around the concubine of the Levitical priest and how she is... um, she leaves him, goes to her father's home. He pursues her, brings her back. On the way back, they come to Gibeah in Benjamin. In Gibeah of Benjamin, they have no hospitality except for one man who's not a native Benjamite. He invites him into his house during the night. The, the uh, men of Gibeah, who are sodomite perverts, come and bang on the door and demand that they be given the, the man, the Levitical priest, so that they can uh, gang rape him during the night. That does not... Uh, instead of taking him, they give his concubine. She is gang raped and murdered during the night. And when he is done, he comes home. I mean, the Levite, after that, he goes to his home, takes her body, cuts it into 12 pieces, and then sends the, he doesn't send each piece to a tribe. He sends the entire thing. This is a shocking, graphic, uh, brutal a portrayal of what will happen to the nation. It is it is extreme in its response. This is this strikes us as something that is uh, extremely harsh and gross, and that is how the author wants it to be portrayed. This is not a divinely authorized approach to problem solving. You don't go back into the Mosaic Law and say if you want to call the nation to arms, this is what you do. Uh, Saul did something similar in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 11, but he did it with uh, an, an oxen. And that was to indicate that this is what will happen to you if you do not follow the message of a divine, I mean, if you do not follow the call to arms. So this is like calling the nation to arms in order to, um, in order to solve the problem of what has taken place in Benjamin. Now, in many ways, if we look at this on the surface, it looks as if this is something positive. They want to deal with the criminality in the nation. And remember, there are two purposes for a for divine institution number four, which is government. The two purposes for divine institution number four are to protect the nation from external enemies and to protect the citizens from criminality. That is the primary purpose and focus of government. Everything else is secondary. Things like welfare, social security, all other aspects that the liberal socialist agenda has foisted on the American people in the last 40 or 50 years is secondary, and it detracts. You always get leadership in a nation. In fact, um, what has happened in the last 50 years in denuding the military of its power and its ability and its arsenal uh, keeps this nation from being able to retaliate in the way that it should as a result of the events this last week. Every person who's voted for the reduction of military and military spending in the last 30 years, in my opinion, ought to be, you know, it's too bad we can't draw and quarter them as traitors because that, that people have warned 
for years that this is exactly what would happen, is that we would come to a point where we were attacked, and everybody said, oh, no, that will never happen. Well, it's happened now, and we can't respond the way we could because we didn't recognize evil. And this is the problem. If you read a book, it's a hard book to read, it's got, but it's got great insights by a man named Thomas Sowell called Conflict of Vision. What Sowell sets forth in that book, he's a, and he is a fantastic commentator. I usually read his editorial on the, on the uh, Internet. But what Soul points out there is there's two basic visions of reality. That's why most people tend to line up on the same side of most issues, whatever it is that you come up with, whether it has to do with taxes and income taxes, whether it has to do with welfare, whether it has to do with uh, 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 any sort of government approach to problem solving, whatever it might be, the same people tend to line up on the same side of the issues. The reason is it boils down to people have different views of reality. The difference between the more liberal view of reality and the more conservative view of reality boils down to the liberals think that man is basically good and the conservative view of reality is that man is basically evil. And the problem with that, those visions, is that they are deeply held and entrenched in people. Now, the one that is most consistent with the biblical view is that people are inherently evil. Scripture says the heart is wicked above all things, wicked and the heart is evil and desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Man is inherently evil. And yet, Americans want to look at the best for everybody. And so often we think that man is basically good. And that leads usually, that's the same kind of thinking that affected uh, Chamberlain at Munich prior to World War II. It's the kind of thinking that produces appeasement. And when you try to appease evil, evil sees that as weakness. And what the problem today is that arrogance, arrogance which has wrapped its tentacles around the heart of this nation, is deeply entrenched. And arrogance is tough to shake, and arrogance thinks that man is basically good. And so what I'm afraid we're going to see as a result of the actions this last week is, and I've already heard it, I was talking with a friend of mine yesterday who, um, in another part of the country who was... Uh, um, at a getting her hair done and she said that that so many of the people there were saying well I just hope we don't bomb I hope we don't escalate the violence and then you have um, Madonna praying at a concert night before last in LA that that uh, President Bush just wouldn't resort to violence because that will just escalate things well the only way to stop evil and the violence of evil is with violence. It's divinely authorized in the Old Testament. God does not forbid uh, the killing and violence in battle. He forbids murder. That's uh, The Ten Commandments doesn't say, Thou shalt not kill. The Hebrew word, and we'll find it in this passage, is ratzach, and it means to commit murder. And the only way to stop violence and evil sometimes is with equal or greater violence. And yet it must be properly motivated at some level. And it is not for revenge. And this is the problem that we have, that we are faced with here in Judges 20, is that this military action against Benjamin is motivated by arrogance, and it's motivated by a desire for personal vengeance. And the result of that is because 
those are mental attitude sins. Mental attitude sins flow from arrogance. Arrogance is always self-destructive and, frag and fragments a person, fragments a nation. The result of that, it, this on the nation, is horrendous. So we do not, we must be very careful in how we think about our response to the events of this last week. It's not about two things that you will hear a lot on the news. Number one, it's not about vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Vengeance belongs in the hands of the Lord. Number two, it's not, it's not about justice. We have to be very careful. We hear too many people talking about the fact that we need to bring these people to justice. Let me use an analogy. It's not original with me. I got this out of Thomas Sowell's column this last week. In World War II, Yamamoto was the commander of the naval forces of the Empire of Japan. He is the one who initiated and planned the attack on Pearl Harbor. It was not our goal after Pearl Harbor to simply kill and remove Yamamoto. Several years into the war, uh, American intelligence discovered that Yamamoto was going to be on a flight in the South Pacific, and he was shot down and killed, but that didn't end the war. You see, the problem that we're facing here is a complex problem. It is not, if it turns out to be Osama bin Laden, which is how, what, you, what it appears to be, it's not just him. There is an entire web of terrorists out there. And for the sake of world peace, for the sake of stability in the markets, for the sake of ending evil in the world, it must be ended. There's an analogy here between what happened in a war, that the first war, I'm not sure if it was a declared war or not, but the first major military action that this nation was involved in after the uh, war for independence was called the war against the Barbary Pirates. Now, in a lot of ways, the Barbary Pirates were, uh, isn't it ironical, they were Islamic uh, terrorists of the high seas. And uh, they came out of the, the North African nations, Algiers and Tunisia and Libya and that area. See, some things don't change a whole lot in history. And uh, they had been in operation in the Mediterranean and on the Atlantic for um, since at l for many, many years, but they had become extremely bold since about the middle of the 1600s. But by the end of the 18th century, which is the end of the around 1790s, early 1800s, they were emboldened and uh, they had started using sailing ships instead of galleys, so they'd been rather primitive for a while. And they began to attack, uh, made the mistake of attacking American shipping in the Mediterranean. And so we sent the Marines over there. You know, when the Marines sing from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, well, those are the shores of Tripoli. And that's where we sent uh, the Navy, and they had put a stop to a lot of it. It wasn't ended for another 30 years, I think, until the 1830s before the British finally shut it down completely. It took several centuries. It took several centuries before that scourge was ended. The same kind of thing is going to happen today. This may turn out to be a very long war. It may be very costly. We may see a number of assaults, a uh, number of more assaults on this nation from terrorist activity. And we have to steel ourselves for that in our souls, and that comes from Bible doctrine. 
We, more than anyone else, have a tremendous hope and confidence. We are to take a lesson from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who we just studied in in Daniel a couple of weeks ago, that our lives are, we know that our destiny is heaven, that there's nothing that separates us, much that separates us from physical life and eternal life in heaven, and so this life is not to be the focal point. It's so easy for people to succumb at times like this to a focus on the here and now and lose focus on the eternal realities. But as believers, we have a tremendous opportunity to give people insight into God's plan for history, into dispensations, into prophecy, and most importantly of all, into salvation. It's a tremendous time to give people the gospel because people are confused, or people are scared, people are concerned, people are worried, and we need to give people the gospel. Uh, look at Judges chapter 20, verse 1. If you have a pen, you ought to circle the first person pronouns that are in this first three verses. And all this, this occurs as a result of the Levite sending out his call to arms to the nation. Then all the sons of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. The chiefs of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the sons of Israel said, Tell us, how did this wickedness take place? So in these first three verses... We see what appears to be a positive sign. The author uses positive verbiage. First of all, if you notice in verse 1, he says, The congregation assembled. The Hebrew word here for assembled is kahal. Kahal looks like this in the Hebrew. Q-A-H-A-L. And this is the normal verb... For the assembly of the nation as the theocratic nation before God. So it has a very positive connotation, has religious overtones. And then he uses the term, the congregation, which is ha-eda. Ha is the uh, definite article. And H-A apostrophe E-D-A, ha-eda. And ha-eda indicates that, once again, the congregation of the nation. So they are assembling. This has very positive uh, indications. They're they're gathering at Mizpah, which is a site where the nation had met uh, previously to worship before the Lord and receive divine guidance. And then in verse 2, we're told that the chiefs of all the people, even of all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God. So the terminology, the assembly of the people of God, draws our attention again to their relationship to God as God's chosen people. So the combination of this terminology here is to indicate that this is something positive. But even though it appears to be positive, it's not. Before we go on, we need to take a minute to remind ourselves of what is described back in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Hold your place there. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy 13. Deuteronomy 13, I think we looked at this last time. We're told that the nation is to uh, 
exercise a disciplinary action against any city in the nation that succumbs to idolatry. If you hear in one, starting in verse 12, if you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some, some worthless men, sons of Belial, that's the same terminology used in Judges uh, 19, some sons of Belial have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods. Then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. I want you to pay attention to those three verbs. Investigate, search out, and inquire thoroughly. That means they have to get all the facts. Before you engage in a military action, you have to have the right intelligence. Before we engage in any kind of retaliation, on what took place in New York this last week, we have to get all the facts. Everybody wants to, well, let's run out and do something, but we have to relax. We have to operate from a position of strength and objectivity, not from a position of vengeance and vindictiveness. We have to get all of the facts. We have to operate smoothly, and we have to know exactly where we're going to hit and, and make sure we're going after the correct targets. We have to investigate, search out, inquire thoroughly. If it is true and the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword. So this is, the description here is of what's in the Hebrew, it's harem, and it means holy war. There are two kinds of war in the scriptures. There's holy war and there's just war. Both are valid and established in scripture. Uh, the principle is clearly established, especially in the book of Nehemiah, when uh, Nehemiah and the Jews were under attack by uh, various forces in the land to keep them from rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, that freedom it comes only through military victory. Our freedoms are established on the battlefield. They are gained on the battlefield, and each generation has to prove itself as to whether or not they are willing to have a life and a nation of freedom. And we are on the verge, I think, of an event in history that is going to give the present generation the opportunity to demonstrate whether they are worthy of freedom or not. And they must make that decision. In this case, it's holy war, not just war. They were to strike the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it, all that is in it. That means every man, woman, and child, and cattle, all the livestock, everything they, they weren't to... Uh, they weren't to ransack the city. They weren't to uh, take it for themselves. They were to destroy everything. Verse 16, Then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of its open square and burn the city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to uh, Yahweh your God, and it shall be a ruin forever, and it shall never be rebuilt. And nothing from that which is put under the ban, that's harem, where we get the word harem from like a, like a sultan's harem, uh, which means he isolates an area for, to, to circle it and set it apart. It's put under the ban. Shall cling to your hand in order that the Lord may turn from his burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you and make you increase. So the holy war was viewed as an act of the mercy and compassion of God. It's the justice of God being satisfied by the destruction of evil. There is a time and place in history when evil has to be eradicated. It will never be eradicated in totality until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back at the second coming. But it is the purpose of government to do what it can to control and restrain evil as much as possible. That is one function of divine institution number four, 
And too often, someone will run into people who will say, well, you know, it's never really worked. Violence has never really stopped evil. We, we stopped Hitler, but it came back again in the form of Stalin and the communists, and we stopped it again, and so why, why fight it? Well, what a defeatist attitude. And yet, I have heard of people making those comments in the last week. Uh, I am proud of our president and of his advisors and of the Congress because of the strong, unified stand that they have made and the realization by many of our leaders that we must stop this in its tracks. We have waited far too long and hopefully not too long. And uh, we need to take a strong stand, but it will call from the fortitude of the people because it will it perhaps may call for many to sacrifice and many to give the ultimate sacrifice in order to continue the freedoms of this nation. War is, just war is legitimate and is ordained and established by God. Now let's go back to Judges 20. Judges 20, we see verses 4, we see the response of the Levite. They're trying to, they're following, they're trying to follow the procedure of Deuteronomy uh, 13, so they're asking him to give, give his side of the story. But I want you to notice the personal pronouns here. He says, So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Gibeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. Now, the undertone here is that he's self-absorbed. I mean, he's focusing on this thing as personal vengeance. First of all, we see that from the fact that he is not authorized to call an assembly of the nation. We looked at that last time. We saw that that only the kings and priests and judges, only excuse me, only kings and judges had the had the right to call a nation to war. He does not. He is simply reacting from his own personal uh, situation and his own personal desire for for vengeance. And so he is emphasizing himself. The other thing I want you to note here is that in verse. For she is described as the husband of the woman who was murdered. Here's our Hebrew word, ratzach, which means to commit homicide. It is the same word that is used in uh, Exodus chapter 20 for in the commandment, thou shalt not murder. It is not a general word for killing. It is a word for premeditated murder. And that is what is forbidden. The Ten Commandments do not forbid killing in self-defense. And that is the foundation for just war theory is that when a nation or a group of people are threatened, they have the right to protect themselves. And it is only in the protection of themselves from the onslaught of evil that they can maintain their freedoms. And that is why a nation must always have a strong military, because we live in a fallen world that is dominated by evil. And only when there is a small, uh, strong military do we have prevention from e- from evil. And when that military is weak and you're perceived as being weak, then that just encourages the enemy to attack. And that's why we must show extreme strength at this time. Any sign of weakness is just going to encourage more attacks. And that's what has happened. If you go back and you look over the last 
several years there have been the the from the bombing of the uh, of the World Trade Center in '93, the bombing of the uh, uh, barracks in Saudi. The um, let me see what else happened. There was a bombing of the embassies. Uh, there have been several plots foiled. Um, terrorists have been arrested who are going to create some some uh, uh, incidents and explosion, blow up LAX last year for the Millennium and some other events. This is not the beginning. This is we're coming in in the middle of this thing, and so it is time to show strength. We have shown weakness far too much, and that has just encouraged these terrorists to continue to step up their violence against us. We must realize that violence, only violence can stop violence, and therefore we must return with an equal, if not stronger, violent reaction. The Levite is described as the husband of the woman who was, who was, um, the woman who was murdered. And he focuses on himself. Now, the second thing I want you to notice here is he, he, he describes the men of Gibeah. Verse 5 is not the men of Gibeah. Literally, it's the lords of Gibeah. It's the same phrase that was used to describe the leaders at Shechem back in Judges chapter 9, the Baalah of Gibeah. And that is, again, to emphasize the writer uses the term Baal as a g- generic term. It's the proper name for the god Baal who is one of the chief gods in the Canaanite pantheon, but it is a general term for lords. That's what Baal means, is lord. And the Hebrew writer uses this term because he wants us to think in terms of the fact that these men represent the Canaanite uh, thinking of the land, that the the Jews have become, uh, are living and thinking as much like the Canaanites as the Canaanites did. So he says the Baalah, the men of Gibeah, rose up against me and surround the house at night because of me they intended to kill me instead they ravished my concubine that she died and then the other thing I want you to notice is in verse 6 he describes their actions they committed a lewd and disgraceful act in in, uh, Israel lewd is the Hebrew word zima which means disgraceful or shameful behavior especially fornication incest sexual perversion as well as murder it's used again in Hosea chapter 6 Verse 9, it specifically refers to sexual crime, but can refer to murder. And a disgraceful act, this is the Hebrew word navala, which means a senseless, foolish act or willful sin. So these are some of the strongest words that can be used. So he is calling the nation uh, to act. Now there's two, two things, as I've said, that, that are bothersome about this. First of all, as I've noted, there's this excessive use of the first person pronoun, which indicates that he's a little more concerned with what happened to him and his loss and not her loss or the danger this presents to the nation. And second, there is no mention of God. Even though the assemblage here has terms that that carry with it denotations, positive denotations, there is no mention of God. There are some positive spiritual overtones, but God seems to be left out of the picture. Now look at what happens in terms of their reaction, starting in verse 8. Yeah, I want you to notice it's an emotional reaction. It's a reaction for vengeance. It is not looking at this in terms of their judicial responsibility under the Mosaic law. They want personal vengeance. 
And it's a reaction. Then all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor will any of us return to his house. So there's an emphasis on unity here. Now, this is the thing which we will do to give you. We will go up against it by lot. Now, in verses 9 through 11, describe the, um, describe the organization. They're going to take their time. They're going to plan the assault. They, they set up a quartermaster corps to take care of their logistics. In verse 10, they say they'll take 10 men out of 100 and 100 out of 1,000. And basically, they take 10% of their troops in order to set up a supply line to supply food for the troops when they assault Gibeah. And then they gather against the city. And so verses 9 through 11 gives, gives us a very brief summary of their organization. This probably took some time. This didn't just happen in one day. They didn't go off half-cocked and, and run out and surround the nation. But they took some time. They did plan. They did organize. And then they, they attacked Benjamin. Now in verse 12 we read, Then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying... Now, the idea of the then indicates a temporal clause, suggesting that at the same time they're setting up the organizational strategy and setting up their supply lines, they are doing the investigation. But the fact is, what the the hint is here is that while they're setting up their supply lines... And while they're doing all of this, like they've already determined what they're going to do, but they're just going to go through the motions of investigation. They've already decided that Benjamin is, is guilty, and they've established uh, the military. They're, they're getting ready to attack, and then they go, and they, they, uh, they've already prejudged the situation. Uh, then the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the entire tribe of Benjamin, saying, What is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. Now, as you can see, there's certain parallels with what's going on today. But don't, don't run afoul of trying to make application. A couple of things we need to note. First of all, at this point, they are engaged in setting up their military operation, but there's no prayer. There's no inquiry before the Lord. That's not present. They're just doing it on their own. Um, Second, we see that they are united. Third, we see that they are seeming, at least on the surface, to follow the uh, guidelines of the Mosaic Law in order to gain information and to make sure they're guilty. But they're going to overreact. The point is not, they, they partially obey. It's not that, there's, that they're doing anything wrong here. It's that the underlying attitude flows from arrogance. They're involved in vengeance. And we see that because of the ultimate reaction and how they, how they respond. Benjamin reacts. They're intractable. Apparently, they sense the, um, the um, Arrogance of the rest of the tribes, and they react. And this usually happens, especially in civil wars. You see one side setting up in their self-righteous uh, uh, belief in their own veracity, and then the other side reacts equally. We saw that in the American Civil War. You see it in some degree in the English Civil War in the 1600s. And you see it going on continuously in Ireland today in the religious wars that are going on there. Arrogance always produces a reaction. So Benjamin does not respond in any level of humility. They do not seek justice among their own people. And so they are committed to justifying their own sin. 
So, in, we follow the uh, process in verse, uh, down in verse 12. Then the tribes of Israel sent, or in verse 13, Now then, deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death. Remove this wickedness from Israel. But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. And the sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the sons of the Lord. Now, we get into the battle and the war starting in verse 15. Remember to watch for these things. There's no prayer. There's no sacrifice. An evil's been committed in the land, and there are no burnt offerings. There's no confession. See, before the people go to the Lord, they're required, according to the Mosaic law, to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice and to confess their sins. The psalmist says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. And that's the background for the initial failures taking place in this war. And the same thing happened earlier in the campaign under Joshua. After, uh, after they defeated the city of uh, Jericho, some in, among the Jews kept some of the booty for themselves. Now, under the law of Cherem, under the law of, uh, of holy war, you kept no spoil for yourself. There's no plunder. But some men did. And that represents sin among the nation. When they went to attack Ai, they were defeated. Not because they were doing something wrong, but because they were doing a right thing in a wrong way. They would had unconfessed sin in the, among the people. So they had to get rid of that. They had to find those people, and they had to deal with them. And once they dealt with the sin, then they could have victory. And that's the principle that underlies what happens here is there's no prayer, there's no sacrifice, they're not seeking truth before the Lord, they're just doing what a lot of us do at times, is we have a problem and we run off 100 miles an hour trying to solve the problem without ever taking time to stop and search the Scriptures to see what the doctrinal solution is and how to handle it biblically. And so they're running off um, without consulting the Lord. They're just thinking that because generally they're God's people and they're generally following the law, that God ought to give him their, their approval. Verse 15, And from the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were numbered 26,000 men who draw the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who were numbered 700 choice men. Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone. So this is their secret weapon. They have 700 sharpshooters who can sling a stone, and they're, they're all left-handed. Now, the fact that they're all left-handed is interesting because that demonstrates that the, the liberals just think the tribes just kind of came together because of uh, different sociological factors. But the fact that, that the majority of Benjamites are left-handed indicates that there's a certain genetic unity among the tribes and a genetic uh, similarity. Now, they get together, and they um, uh, you have your... 26,000 Benjamites against the 400,000 of Judah. But Benjamin is in the hill country, and so they have an advantage, much like the Chiricahua Apaches had down in southern Arizona back a little over 100 years ago in the late 1870s and 1880s, that whenever miners and, and military moved through those canyons in the Chiricahua Mountains, they were ambushed. A small force could defeat a much larger force, and that's what was taking place here. Uh, verse 17, the men of Israel besides Benjamin were numbered 400,000 who drew the sword. All these were men of war. Now the sons of Israel rose, went up to Bethel, and inquired of God. Oh, well, this looks good, doesn't it? 
Well, no, it really doesn't because notice it's God, lowercase lowercase o and lowercase d, which indicates it's Elohim. This is the generic term for God. This is not Yahweh. This is not coming to God as the God of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're just going through the religious motions. See, religion never solved anything, and God's not going to... Uh, answer their prayer. Now, we say, well, God does answer. He says, Judah shall go up first. Yes, but God is disciplining them. And this is a sign that the Lord, who, notice at the end of the verse, it says, then the Lord said, and Lord there is in uppercase, indicating Yahweh. See, God does not completely turn his back on us when we're out of fellowship. We may not, as believers in the church age, we can understand this by application, that God does not completely retreat from our lives when we're out of fellowship. He's still involved in our lives in terms of divine discipline. Whom the Lord loves, he also chastens, scourges alive with a whip. God is still involved in discipline, and that's what's happening here. God is not going to give them victory in the battle. He is going to give them a defeat in the battle, and that's why God's working in their life is because he needs to bring them to a point of genuine and enforced humility so that they put God first in the battle. They're not putting God first in the battle. They're concerned with their own Agenda and not his agenda at this point. So the Lord says Judah shall go up first. So verse 19 gives us the display of battle number one. The sons of Israel rose in the morning, camped against Gibeah. Men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gibeah. Then the sons of Benjamin came out and fell to the ground on that day 22,000 men of Israel. 22,000 are killed. That's not just killed and wounded. That's killed. Uh, By comparison, in the entire military campaign on Iwo Jima, 5,931 Marines were killed. That was in a two-week action. That was the bloodiest action of the Marine Corps in World War II. Uh, 60,000, a little over 60,000 were killed during the Vietnam War. And on the bloodiest day in American history at the Battle of Antietam, uh, total casualties killed and wounded on both sides, north and south, totaled 22,000. This is 22,000 killed in one battle. This is incredible. And remember, they didn't have weapons of mass destruction. Nobody's sitting out there with an M16 or with an M60 machine gun or grenade launchers or anything else. This is all done in basically hand-to-hand combat with swords and spears. So it was a long, bloody, dirty, violent day. And the Jews, the, the 11 tribes, are handed a major defeat. But they're not, they still have resolved, they're not giving up. Verse 22, but the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves and arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. So they're going to go back for more the second day. But first they're going to go to the Lord. And it's a little better, but they're not there yet. And then the sons of of Israel, verse 23, the sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening and inquired of the Lord, saying, and notice here it's inquiring of Yahweh. So they're getting a little closer. They're recognizing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not just God now. It is the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're getting past the ecumenical God and going to the true God of the Bible. Shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? And the Lord says, go up against him. See, it is ultimately the Lord's will for this discipline to take place against Gibeah, as per Deuteronomy 13. But he's got to 
get the attention and, and, and teach some lessons to the rest of Israel at the same time. So they go up against Benjamin the second day, and in this battle, 18,000 are killed. So now they're really what? They've had 40,000 killed in two days. That's two-thirds of the casualties the killed in Vietnam. This is an incredible military defeat. Now, finally, they get the point. Verse 26, all the sons of Israel and all the people went up and came to Bethel. They're going to go before the house of God, and they wept. And they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. Now, fasting is an interesting, is never mandated anywhere in the Scriptures. The purpose for a fast wasn't to somehow impress God that, okay, I'm going to pray, and therefore I want you to pay special attention to the fact that I'm willing to not eat or drink for a while, and that that should impress you, God, enough to where you're going to answer my prayer. See, God's not impressed by that. What, what, is, what the issue is in fasting is that you are a person is so consumed with a problem that the normal day-to-day cares are no longer relevant. He's going to make doctrine and his God the number one priority to the exclusion of everything else. It's not done to impress God, and God doesn't respond because um, you fast. But the fasting is secondary. The fasting just indicates that, that food was no longer an issue. They were so overwhelmed and concerned with this problem that food and drink was not a concern. And then the last statement says it all. They offered burnt offerings, Allah, and peace offerings before the Lord. That means that now they're finally going to confess their sins. Now that they're in fellowship as a nation, now that they've confessed their sins, they're going to have victory. But there's no victory in the battle when you don't have uh, your sins confessed. This is the importance of confession. This is why I stress it over and over again. Every time we gather together, it's not because, you know, some people say, well, doesn't that seem mechanical? Well, you can make it mechanical if you want to, but that's how you learn skills as you repeat them over and over and over again. And it's to drill into our thinking that we have to be in fellowship, and that's the only way we can have spiritual victory. So they finally confess their sins, and they go before the Lord, and we're told in verse 28, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son. So see, we're still just a couple of generations removed. This is early in the period of the judges. Stood before the, the ark to minister in those days, saying, Shall I yet go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? And the Lord said, Go up tomorrow. I will deliver them into your hands. So finally, they're going to have the assurance of victory. Now, they have a strategy here. I have a map here on the overhead. Well that we can look at. We'll get that up in a minute. They're going to adopt a strategy. For two days, they've had the same approach. They have assaulted the city and been defeated. So they figure, well, if they did it the first time and they did it the second time, then we'll just follow the same strategy the third time as we assault the city. But this time, we're going to pull a trick on them, and we will... um, um, We'll... uh, Ambush them. This is a. Ah, there we go. There we go. Here is Gibeah. If you look, here's Gibeah here. The the dotted arrow line here is the uh, movements of the Benjamite troops, and the dark arrow represents the movement of the 
uh, Israel troops. So they met at Mizpah. They come down here from the north to attack Gibeah. But this last time what happens is they send another uh, contingent around to hit Gibeah from the west. And so they draw out. It's a, it's a, a feint from the north, and it draws the Benjamites out from Gibeah one more time, thinking, well, this time maybe we'll hand them a final defeat, and they pull away from Gibeah and leaving the town unprotected. And so now the Israelites hit from the west, and they destroy the town. Now, this destruction of the city follows the procedures of Deuteronomy 13, but the problem is they don't stop there. Remember, in holy war... The issue was that they were to destroy the city, but they go further. This is the arrogant overreaction. You know, the punishment must fit the crime. You don't overreact and kill everyone. And that's exactly what they try to do. They're going to try to kill all of the Benjamites. And so they go through... And the rest of the chapter, and I don't want to get boiled down or embroiled in all of the details of the rest of the chapter, but the, uh, this, this basic summary is, is that they hit Benjamin, um, they have this assault on, on, on uh, Gibeah, and they burn and destroy everything in the town, but they keep fighting the entire Benjamite army until they just about wipe everybody out. And there is one group that flees, and heads to the wilderness to the rock of Riman, which means pomegranate. It's a, a cave that on the inside, it's, it's an enormous cave located out here to the east of, uh, of Geba. And out here in, the, in that cave, the inside is, is filled with even more caves, so it looks like the inside of a pomegranate. And it's a great place where people could hold, or an army could hole up and, and be protected. And so in this third battle, Benjamin uh, is defeated to the point that there are only 600 men left at the end of the battle. So the rest of Israel has uh, assaulted the nation and overreacted, I mean assaulted the tribe and overreacted rather than just destroying Gibeah. They have wiped out all but 600 men in the tribe of Benjamin. Now they are left with a major problem. And this problem is discussed in verse 21 of the next chapter. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. See, back when they first met, they got involved in this arrogant vow. There's no reason for this, for this vow. They are forbidden by the Mosaic law to marry Canaanites. They are not forbidden to marry someone as a Jew. See, that's a false application of the law. This is so typical of self-righteousness. In self-righteousness, there's always distortions and false applications of Scripture. And they're distorting and and have a false application of Scripture in their self-righteousness. Well, now we're just not going to marry any of the Benjamites because they've become so perverted. Well, that's wrong. And now because of that, they've gotten themselves into a trap. They, According to the Mosaic Law, they can't break the vow. But the vow was wrong. Now, rather than going before the Lord and saying, Lord, how do we get out of this? Looking at the Mosaic Law where there were provisions to uh, buy your way out of the law through a, through a monetary offering, they are, they're stuck with this vow and they try to solve the problem on their own. See, what hap- the dynamic that you see here is under paganism you have the self-sufficiency of man, that man can solve his problems on his own apart from God. 
And even though they're partially obedient and they do confess their sins and that God does solve it, that's, God does give them victory at the end over the Benjamites, they again get out of fellowship through a wrong application of the law through vengeance and revenge motivation. And they overreact and they destroy and wipe out all of the Benjamites. And now they're in this horrible trap they've created for themselves. And that's exactly what happens so often when we try to solve problems on our own. All we do is we create more problems till eventually we're in this uh, tremendous ethical dilemma and trap. And so we see that they're like a bunch of jailhouse lawyers and they're going, to, they're going to try to figure out a solution to their problem. And, and they have a rather ingenious solution. The first thing they say, we all made a vow that we're not going to give any of our daughters to the Benjamites. Well, wait a minute. Maybe somebody didn't show up. Let, 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 let's do a roll call of all the tribes and all the towns and see if there's anybody who didn't uh, show up and make the vow. Because if they didn't make the vow, then they're, they're not responsible for it. So they... Um, uh, and. and they come up with this ingenious solution, but first, notice they blame God. This is so often happens. We've used human solutions. We get in a trap, and then we blame God. They, they gather at, at Bethel in verse 2. After the battle, the people came to Bethel and sat before the God until evening and lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, Why, O oh God, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing? What, you know, oh, woe is me. They're self-absorbed, self-pity. They're on their own emotional response to everything, but they're not looking at the fact that, hey, it's our own fault for compound carnality. You know, God, get us out of this mess. How did this ever happen? And, and um, notice there's no response from God. And they, then they try their own solution. Verse 5, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord in Mizpah, saying he should surely be put to death. So they had made a vow, and along with the, the vow not to allow their daughters to marry, they said that anybody who didn't come and fight in the battle would be put to death. So now they put this together, and they discover that the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, which is uh, across the Jordan, uh, here is the Jordan River in the middle of this map, and Jabesh-Gilead is located somewhere over here in, um, in the Trans-Jordan, somewhere about in this location. We're not sure exactly where. And um, they go over there, and they're going to kill everybody in town except for the marriageable virgin daughters. So they go, they, they, they send out a special operations team of 12,000 in verse 10 to strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. So now they're fighting their own people. They're executing holy war against a city that hasn't really done anything wrong. And they are to kill the men, the women, and the little ones. And then verse 11, this is the, the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who is lain with a man. But the virgin daughters they're going to save. So they find 400 virgin daughters. How they went about that process, I don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. It should have been a rather interesting procedure. But they somehow isolate 400 virgin daughters and they kill everybody else. Now remember, this whole thing starts off because this... Uh, Levite's concubine is mistreated by the people in Gibeah. Well, now they've compounded this, this the crime of Gibeah um, a thousandfold. This is much worse than what happened in Gibeah, and this is what happens in self-righteousness, is that, that the solution becomes worse than, than, than the original problem. And so now they're going to kill everyone except these 400 virgins and force them to marry 400 of the Benjamites. 
That's tantamount to, to uh, group rape. And then they don't have enough. There's still 200 Benjamites. See, they're operating from guilt, motivation, and emotion in all of this. And um, they still don't have enough. So, so they say, well, where are we going to get them? We can't give them our daughters. Well, look at verse 19. Here's the solution. It's called the rape of Shiloh. So they said, Behold, there is a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and, and on the south side of Labona. And they said, down to verse 20, Go and lie and wait in the vineyards. Now, go and lie and wait in the vineyards and watch and behold the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances. Now, this indicates that this is probably not one of the major feasts in Israel. There was nothing related to the major feasts in Israel that had anything to do with the women dancing. This indicates, again, that they have um, assimilated, they have compromised a lot of biblical feast days with pagan festivals and pagan practices. So, once again, we're showing the author is showing how paganized Israel has become, and this may very well just be some sort of uh, fertility uh, worship and have nothing to do with any of the feast days in Israel because they all had to do with the men gathering, not the women. And watch it, verse 21, Watch and behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you shall come out of the vineyards, and each one of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh. See, they, the, the men of Shiloh aren't going to give you their daughters. You're going to go take them, so that way we're going to get around the vow. See, the, in legalism, you come up with all kinds of tortured ways to somehow to uh, work things out and, and maintain your obedience to the law. And so the sons of Benjamin do this, and they go out and they... Uh, capture these 200 wives and uh, forcibly take these 200 virgins and forcibly take them as their wives, which is also called rape. So in order to avenge the rape of the concubine in Gibeah and her murder, you now end up in self-righteousness completely, ironically destroys and reverts everything. So now there's the destruction in Jabesh-Gilead. They destroy, they, they wipe out the tribe of Benjamin, Almost to, except for 600, they kill all the men and women and children except for 400 marriageable virgins in Jabesh Gilead, and then they forcibly take take uh, the 200 uh, daughters of Shiloh. So they uh, avenge the the vengeance becomes worse than the original action. So in paganism and arrogance, violence becomes wrong. Violence becomes self-destructive of the nation. And we close our study of the book of Judges once again with a reminder by the author that there was no king in the land of Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So after, I don't know how long it's been, a year and a half, we close our study in Judges and we see the dynamics of paganism and arrogance and its self-destruction to a nation. And we need to take lessons from that in our own national history, but even more in terms of our own spiritual lives, because we face the same problem. When we succumb to arrogance and to relativism, it fragments our souls, it fragments our spiritual lives, and then in moral relativism, we end up self-destructing as believers. But there's hope. There's always hope. As long as you're alive, God still has a plan for your life. Even in the depths of this depravity in Israel, there is hope. There are shining lights of hope in the land, and that is covered in the next book, the book of Ruth, which we will begin next Sunday morning. Ruth is the story of the 
positive believers in the land and of how God's grace is still working in the land because the story doesn't end with the depravity of the judges. It goes on to Israel's greatest glory as they return to doctrine and they return to an understanding and orientation to God's grace. That is our only hope. As long as we're alive, God still has a plan for our life and there can still be a future of glory and peace and hope because you return to doctrine. And that is the issue. There's always that chance, that opportunity. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the insights that it has given us, both in terms of our own spiritual life and in terms of history and the dynamics of uh, national policies. Father, we pray again for our nation, for our leaders, that they might be making wise decisions, that... um, uh, that this nation might have its freedoms protected and may indeed experience a spiritual recovery and that we might continue to uh, go forth and, and be protected. Father, we pray for, for resolve among the nation to face what it must endure in the coming years, and that can only come from doctrine. Father, but above all, we pray for ourselves and our own spiritual life that we might recognize, realize that Doctrine must be our priority. As goes the believer, so goes the nation. And we must be resolved to make doctrine the highest priority in our lives. Father, we also pray for those who are unsaved, that they might respond to the gospel. And this would be a tremendous opportunity for us to witness, to explain that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ alone, and that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, and that he is indeed coming back. And we may even be close to that return. Father, now we ask that if anyone here is without hope, without assurance of eternal life, without realization of the issues of salvation, that they would make that certain right now in their life. All you need to do where you sit is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Salvation is by trusting that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and by putting your faith alone in Him, you are instantly saved, regenerated, and have eternal life. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.